Thanks, Scott. Let's just pray uh, before we look at God's word. Uh, Father, we uh, come to your word and acknowledge there is some confronting things always to be found in it. So we ask for wisdom about how to read it, how to interpret it, and how to apply it for us here. Uh, your spirit will be with us, we know that. So I rely on your spirit to give us understanding and your word to enlighten us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, um, I'm sure you wouldn't deny that our world has a problem with sexuality and morality in general. Uh, we live in a culture permeated with, with a confused and even purposely perverted view of sexuality. What God calls good is called evil. What God calls evil is called good. And for Christians then to have a proper view of morality and sexuality, we, we need to have a, a thorough biblical and theological foundation for our lives. Because in our culture and broader society, there's a crisis of authority. No one trusts God's word. Everyone's become their own king, their own authority. So we have to be bold. We have to be bold and, and look to God's word as, as authoritative, as instructive to us. We look to God's word and hold on to it and stand in it. Uh, we stand in the, the power of the gospel to transform us in these matters, to renew our minds in these things, but also to uh, make us new, because many of us struggle with these things. So the gospel of Jesus then provides hope for those who are broken, it provides healing for those who have been abused, and it certainly provides redemption for those who are enslaved in these ways. I say that as an introduction to the next few weeks because over the next few weeks we're looking at some, some confronting passages in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and even 7 uh, that relate to these issues of sexual immorality, morality in general, both sins very specific and general. But Paul is talking to these things in the Corinthians church that are happening within the church. He's talking to believers. So we have to sit here under it and say that this is for us too we need to give it our attention even if it's uncomfortable sin has to be called what it is and it has to be dealt with as according to the instruction we have in scripture uh, these chapters will will tell us that our, our hearts need to be transformed other parts of scripture tell us that our minds need to be renewed and transformed these chapters will tell us that we need to be cleansed, as we'll look at this morning. Most of all, we, just, we need Christ. We need to see the cost of our sin. We need to see the cost of our sin. We need to see we're new people, no longer enslaved. We now belong to Christ and to bring God glory. So Paul has, has shifted his emphasis. We've looked at the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians where he's been responding to those initial reports, that first report that came from Chloe's people back in verse 11 of chapter 1, were those reports of factions and divisions that were arising. Start of chapter 5 here, he moves on to talk about another report, something else that has been reported to him, that of a perverse sexual immorality. 
specifically. So his tone shifts in chapter 4. That from of admonishment and even some encouragement to get back to the foundation of Christ and admonishing people in that direction as a gentle father or just as a father would, to then moving to a very disciplinarian tone. There is something wrong here. And as any, any loving father would, as he's described himself in verse 14 of chapter 4, he can't leave these things undealt with. He can't just let it slide. The arrogance of these Corinthians had led to them dismissing Paul's authority and placing themselves in even a higher authority than God is what the end result was. And this morning in our section, we want to especially think through from where Scott read for us from verse 18 through the end of uh, chapter 5. We'll leave a little bit at the end of chapter 5 for next week about judging because that blends into chapter 6 as well. We especially want to think this morning on this, this issue of arrogance. We want to diagnose arrogance. We want to diagnose it as, as destructive and it's dangerous and it's toxic. We then want to think about how church discipline helps with that. How does church discipline an antidote to arrogance? A necessary one, but ultimately we want to look to Christ as the cure for these issues. But firstly, you just want to think on um, arrogance as being destructive and toxic. A recent example of, of this in recent years, many of you would know uh, the name, at least if you don't know the ministry of perhaps of, of Ravi Zacharias. He died in 2020, and just after his death, it was exposed just um, how awful his private life had been. His very indecent acts of sexual immorality over decades and continents everywhere throughout the whole world. While his ministry had spanned so many and reached so many for the gospel, uh, his private life was just built on lies, immorality, abuse, and abuse of others sometimes in the name of God. He'd actually tell some of the people he was abusing this was his right. He'd earned it by God. A horrible thing. Many rightly questioned how could that happen? How could that happen? And it was allowed to happen in some ways because the signs were missed. The first indications that something was wrong was missed or they were covered up. In the years before, he was sued by someone trying to confront him on this very issue. They spent over a million dollars silencing that person. Any staff that questioned it were fired and forced to sign non-disclosure agreements. Any other women that raised things were paid out and forced to sign non-disclosure agreements. All this was happening in the years before his death. Why do I say all this? It happened in a culture where there's just arrogance. He was unaccountable to anybody. He was completely unaccountable. Did not submit himself in a local church anywhere under any kind of authority of elders or community of believers. He refused to repent as well. Confronted again and again, he just refused his power and influence. He just justified his sin as well. A horrible predicament. And because his arrogance was excused and his power was excused and his influence was excused, this all happened. 
Paul's main point in this section is he's dealing with something foul, something gross, something despicable, something disgusting is happening. And while we would rightly say, how could this happen? Paul says it happens arrogant. That's the main cause of this. So it's happening in a culture where arrogance has been allowed to prevail. Boasting has been allowed to prevail. He outlines this in verse 18. Some are arrogant. Verse 19. I'll find out the talk of these arrogant people. Chapter 5, verse 2. Their response to this heinous sin, arrogance. Later in the chapter, they're still puffed up. They're still boasting. And when arrogance is not addressed properly in any setting, immorality soon follows. Boasting and arrogance, Paul is saying, for the Corinthians and for us, are signs of spiritual immaturity. There is something wrong at the base. There's something wrong at the heart. There's something wrong with how you even think of Scripture and of God and of Christ when you act in this way. And when you act in this way, it will lead to more immorality, more destructive things unless it's dealt with. So these things, boasting and arrogance, they're destructive in themselves but they're sometimes the primary things that then lead to other things being worse and more destructive happening, lead to greater destruction. And spiritual maturity, because if boasting and arrogance are signs of spiritual immaturity, then spiritual maturity, as Paul has been explaining to us in the first few chapters, comes from accepting God's wisdom. What's God say? What does his word say? What has Christ done? What does it mean? Grounding your life in that is how you get wisdom. And then how you can discern from good and evil and also how to do good and confront evil. In the Corinthians, you'll notice the end of chapter 4, they're certain that Paul's gone. He's out of sight. He's out of mind. He's not coming back anytime soon. So they've got, in their arrogance, they've almost established a bit of liberty to do whatever they want. Why should they listen to him? They were treating his teaching and his counsel as very optional. Now, you always have the option of whether you listen to something or not. That's, that's just how we work. You always get a choice of whether you listen to something or not. Especially when someone gives you advice, there's always the option of whether you take it on board or not. Sometimes it's helpful, you take it on board. Sometimes it's not fitting, you dismiss it. With some issues, though, it's not optional. It's not optional. When it comes from... God's word, and it's clear instruction. Over here, the Corinthians were treating Paul's teachings as optional, and his authority certainly as optional. Uh, when we were behaving badly as, as children, happened very rarely, of course, for me, but when we were behaving badly as children, mum would always say something to the effect of, maybe some of you have heard this, wait till dad gets home. Uh, dad always came home. But the times I remember waiting for Dad to get home were not always pleasant. But by the time Dad get, did get home, he'd usually find me repentant, penitent, and expectant of consequences. Because I'd either 
grossly disrespected my mother or hurt my siblings or something of those minds. There were consequences to my actions. I wasn't blind to that. The Corinthians in their arrogance was, was blinding them to reality that this sin was in their midst and they weren't even bothering to deal with it. And arrogance blinds you to what's real. It blinds you to what's true. When you're arrogant, you don't see your own sin. You don't even see your arrogance as sin. We don't see the, the evil in our own heart, our own actions, let alone the impact it's having on others or the consequences it's having on others. When we're arrogant, we, we tend to boast in our own accomplishments, what we can do, what we have done, what we will do. Our own status, our own personal freedom, our own personal wealth. Remember, we've just gone through chapter 4 and that's literally what the Corinthians were doing. We're rich, we're free. We're not accountable to anybody. We don't need anybody. Look at what we can do. We, they were talking, and they were talking, and they were talking and Paul says, we'll find out what your talk is like. We'll find out about your talk, whether there's any substance to it, whether you're truly rich, whether you truly have knowledge, whether you're truly free. They think Paul's bluffing. They think he's bluffing that he's going to come back. He says, I'm, I'm sending Timothy, and he's sending this letter. He says, I'm coming. And he calls their bluff in a couple of different ways. And mostly he's just saying, your talk is empty, and I'm going to show it. I'm going to show it on the grounds of the kingdom of God in verse 20. The kingdom of God doesn't consist of talk. It consists of power. It's powerful. It changes your life. Your lives aren't changed. Your talk is empty. They had no real kingdom power. As much as they said earlier in the chapter, we're reigning. And Paul said, I wish we were reigning with you. You're not really ruling. You're not even operating by the kingdom's rules. They'd also neglected one of the fundamental principles of how you enter the kingdom of God or how you possess the kingdom of God from uh, Jesus' teaching at the start of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall possess the kingdom of God. They'd neglected that. They'd gotten full of themselves. And they'd viewed the church and they'd viewed even God's kingdom, because they viewed themselves as reigning, as their own personal fiefdom, their own personal realm, where they were in control. They weren't there to serve. They were there to be served. They'd even gotten ahead of Jesus because even he hasn't come back again to set up his rule and reign in full righteousness and truth. Theirs was a kingdom of talk, not of power. Paul says their talk is empty. They've got nothing to boast in. All their talk as well about how wise and rich they were is just completely baseless. Because you can have, as the Corinthians did in their culture and society, as some of these people in this church in Corinth, you could have status, you could have wealth, but be completely morally bankrupt and compromised. So you might have all these things, he said, but it means nothing unless you deal with sin. So his rebuke is firm. I'm coming, and you've got an option. I come with a rod. I come with love and a spirit of gentleness. His biggest 
way of calling them out of it, though, is when he confronts them with this sin, that you have no power in the culture because you're worse than the culture. What a condemnation of the church. Even the pagans don't do this. Even those outside, unbelievers, are looking down on you and your practices in what you're doing with allowing this sin to continue. And considering what the Corinthian culture practiced, that is a massive condemnation. This is a horrid predicament for the Corinthian church. There's not a position they were in to be of influence of salt and light and be a city on a hill or anything like that. They're a disgrace in their culture. Their response, verse 2 of chapter 5, and you are arrogant. There's a man in the church at Corinth who's having ongoing, and the tense is a man has his father's wife. It is an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife. And we can soften it and say it might be his stepmother, or maybe she was younger, and we can try and find ways, but the plain reading is it's, it's his mother. It's his mother. There's no point in trying to soften it. And their response to this, and it must be a... It's an open knowledge thing. It's clearly known. Their response is arrogance. Affirmation. Justification. Freedom. Love is love. Whatever goes, that's their response. They must have a little hint of something not quite being right because they don't tell Paul about it. This isn't a self-reported incident. Paul is hearing this from someone else. But Paul goes on, what, what should be the appropriate response to sexual immorality in the church? How do we avoid this arrogance? Paul says, ought you rather not to mourn? Shouldn't you mourn over this? Mourning is appropriate because when we truly see the cost of our sin, the impact of our sin, the consequences of our sin on others around us, all the sin of others and how it's impacting those around us, mourning is the appropriate response. We see pain. We see the hurt. We see the disgrace that it brings to the church, the disgrace it brings to Christ's name. We see the lost influence on society and culture around us and we should mourn. And then we step further into it and we begin to examine our own hearts about how could this happen in our midst. Begin to examine ourselves. And even while we're not responsible for the actions of others, biblical examples give us pause here. Many examples in scripture, from Daniel to Ezra to Jeremiah to Isaiah and others. We stop and we we acknowledge their sin and we confess our own sin. We intercede for the sins of others. We confess even together and corporately that there is something wrong. 
and we are guilty. Corporate confession and mourning are necessary when there is sin and this heinous in the midst. And if we're going to have any form of impact on the society and culture around us, any way of reaching the world, we should be real about the sin within the church. We grieve it and we deal with it. This is pause just for some application points here. One point of application when we think of this in the context Paul is talking to and what it might mean for us. We should listen. We pause and we stop. We grieve with someone, but we also listen to them. This must mean we're not quick to tell someone to get over it. As believers and as a church, we must be a culture where we are alongside people. We're walking with them in their pain. We're mourning with them in their suffering, the impact of sin on them. And sometimes that is a lifelong journey for those who have experienced extreme trauma and hurt. Where our responsibility is to walk with them, pointing them to Christ, showing them the hope they have, the healing they have. But sometimes it's walking alongside people through their whole lives, pointing to the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the day of the Lord when all things will be set right. We listen. We're sober. This means we treat issues related to sexual matters and sexual immorality very seriously and soberly. There's no room for joking here. There's no room for joking on this. These are serious things. Snide comments or improper jokes or inappropriate comments in this sort of way are just, it's so unhealthy. And it's not sober. It means we take issues of harassment seriously. We don't dismiss that. We treat it soberly. We're respectful towards one another because we're sober about these things. We don't objectify others. We don't allow a hint of immorality in our speech to others or our conduct towards others. We are sober. Also means we, we make no excuses. We make no excuses about the first thing we see. We don't excuse those primary things when we see them, the initial outward things that we see of pride and arrogance when they're on full display. For Corinth, pride and boasting and arrogance was leading to division for some. They were dividing into factions and groups and dividing the church. And for others, their boasting and arrogance was leading to immorality and perverse immorality. When we notice something, whether it's a questioning of the authority of God's word, as God really said, or whether it's 
a questioning of the authority that God has passed down to us and the teachings that we have received from the apostles and from the instruction that we receive in Scripture to be under the authority of elders in the church or things like that. We begin to look at these things and say, what can we change, what can we twist because I think I might know better. Those are boasting and arrogant things to start to do and they need to be addressed. When we notice those things, they need to be gently confronted. Because those things can be dealt with gently if you catch them up front. A gentle admonishment, even a rebuke with love can counteract what might follow. Because once it moves beyond that to the secondary massive destruction of gross immorality, that comes with a weight of discipline. And that carries a weight that none of us should want to wield or desire for, even when it's necessary. That's where Paul moves on and we, we begin to see that church discipline can be an antidote to arrogance. We think of the picture or the illustration of antidote. An antidote counteracts the toxic substance in your body. Uh, so church discipline is meant to, as an antidote, to arrogant immorality in the church because it, it counteracts the damage it can cause. I've already said we, we grieve sin. Paul goes on to talk, we have to deal with it. Grieve it and deal with it. Let him who has done this thing be removed from you. And no, no one likes this. No one likes this. And in some ways it's, it's good to sit uncomfortable with what's going on when it's disciplined. We shouldn't love to do this. No one likes discipline in general, whether it's the discipline of developing better diet, exercise, better patterns of sleep. That's hard. It's work. It's difficult. We don't like that. We especially don't like being told off or telling others off, especially when we shouldn't like that. Whenever you do have to do that, there should be something that sits in your gut. It's heavy. And church discipline should happen rarely, especially in the context of what's happening here in Corinth. It's a very rare thing, which is extraordinary thing that's going on. But Paul expands this list later. Later in the passage, chapter 9, he starts to talk about, you've, you've misunderstood something in my previous letter. You've thought that I've said, don't associate with sexually moral people, meant don't associate with those outside the church. He said, that's not what I meant. I've got a feeling reading between the lines, he said, you know that's not what I meant. He goes on to increase the list. He includes sexual immorality, greed, swindling, idolatry, reviling, which is mocking or scoffing, rebukes, drunkards. It's not just the issue of sexually immoral people alone that would make for a context of church discipline being needed like this. There's a lot of things that would ex it seem lead to the context where church discipline is needed. If this list is true, it's like, I'm writing to you not to associate, in verse 11, with anyone who bears the name of brother who's guilty of these things. 
There's a few things on the list. What's the link in all these things on the list? Well, they're all immoral. They're all against God's law. But Paul's point is not that anyone who sins should be cut off from the church or removed from the church. That's not the point of, of what Paul is saying. It's not the point of church discipline. We don't come down heavy whenever someone stumbles or even when someone just has a temptation to sin. We do not come down heavy on someone who sins, on sinners. What this is, is someone who's destructively, actively sinning against God. They're owning the name brother or sister, but they're in no way acting like they're part of the family or part of the kingdom. See, the Corinthians are ignoring this problem, even boasting about the sin being committed in their midst. And Paul says, I don't even have to be there to judge that this is wrong. And something has to be done. The believers in Corinth know what he's taught. He's written to them in verse 9. They've had Apollos. They're about to have Timothy. They have the very essence of Paul and his teaching. He was with them for nearly two years establishing the church. They know the truth. He says, I'm with you, with my spirit with you, in the sense of we have the same Holy Spirit, but in the, my essence is there, you know the truth. And when you gather together, put this one out. This, verse 5, delivered this. There's actually, the word man isn't there. It's just this, insert adjective here. Put this out. He's not to remain in fellowship. He's to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And this action is meant to be the deliverance of the man's spirit when Christ returns. Now that's a bit to unpack there. We may not do it to your satisfaction this morning. But someone who is perpetually, continually, unremorsefully, unrepentantly, arrogantly sinning is declaring Christ is not my Lord. They don't have part in his kingdom. By delivering them to Satan, they're handing them over to what they've chosen. You have chosen this way of life. Here is your Lord. And he'll destroy everything about you. And all you're left with is is your sin. If you are consumed in your passions and desires, you'll be consumed by your passions and desires. Church discipline is meant to be a loving act that protects and affirms the holiness of God's people and aims for the salvation of the individual. So even in his destruction of the flesh, it's so that his spirit might be saved. Every act of loving discipline is in a way giving the person who has done wrong the consequences of their actions. There's a cost to acting like God's word and will don't matter in your life. There's a cost to that. There's a consequence to living like the world revolves around you. Say it to uh, one of our children sometimes when they're struggling with something. When they're struggling to be respectful, or they're struggling to play nice or whatever. So who are you thinking of when you act like this? Who are you thinking for 
What are you thinking of? Just me. What does God tell us? He says, love God and love others. So who are you loving right now? Me. Who are you left with if you just loved yourself? Me. Discipline corrects in the point of giving the consequences of the action. This is the natural consequence, but there's also eternal consequence. You might scrape through if you repent. You remember back in chapter 3, those who build on Christ's foundation with wood, hay, straw, stubble, they might at the end, in the day of the Lord, when the fire comes and consumes anything, they might get through, but by the skin of their teeth. You might be saved, but by the barest of margins. And that doesn't seem a great way to live. Those who isolate themselves from the authority of Christ isolate themselves from the blessings of Christ. That is why the judgment is so strong. Don't even eat with such a one, he says. And by that, especially in Corinthian culture, as we look at when we get to chapter 11, the Lord's table was a full meal where everybody sat down together, enjoyed full fellowship and full unity. It was meant to be that way. We'll see in chapter 11 that wasn't happening that way partly because of these sorts of things. But Paul is saying, if you're going to act in such a way, you remove yourself from that blessing. You can't have full fellowship. And you shouldn't be eating with those who don't actually want full fellowship with Christ. They're not partaking of him, so they can't partake with you. Every act of discipline is meant to be restorative, to save a soul by warning them of sin, even the consequences of their sin, just warning them of the consequences of where they're going. This same incident Paul returns to in 2 Corinthians and he talks about the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. He talks about this incident again. He said, that was painful. That was hard. And I told you to do those things to test you, to see if you would do it. And implicitly from what he says in following, they did it. And the man was restored. He said, because whoever you've forgiven, I'll forgive. And he said, Satan has been defeated. We're not ignorant of what Satan tries to do, but in doing it this way, in in acting discipline, you have defeated Satan's devices in the church. This man was restored from what we understand, wonderfully. Notice responsibility falls to the whole church for discipline in this area to the whole assembly. There is something powerful in the gathered people of Christ. There's much to unpack about church discipline in other passages of scripture and how we deal with things. But in this context, Paul is instructing the whole church to take responsibility. They need to deal with it. There's no placating. There's no affirming. There's no justifying. There's no ignoring. There's something to be confronted. And those who give themselves to darkness must be given over to what they desire. He goes on to talk about this issue of that that little bit that permeates the whole. And when we're dealing with sin, we have to view it seriously. Remember, even the smallest amount is a serious matter before a holy God. He uses the illustration here of leaven permeating the whole loaf. So it is with sin. 
If there's sin in the midst, if there's sin in the camp, it will permeate and affect the whole. So there has to be an ultimate cure. So if the antidote sort of counteracts the effects of a toxic substance that's affecting the body, the cure eliminates the cause, cuts it down right at the heart. So how do we cure our arrogance? Well, Christ has to be seen as the cure, and that's what Paul finishes off with here. Like cleansing out what is unclean is important. What is impure, what is sinful, we cleanse it out. That is important. Deal with it. Remove him from among you. Purge, verse 13. Cleanse out. Has to be dealt with. When we don't, when we don't follow this instruction, we diminish the work of Christ. We diminish Christ's sacrifice. And we're actually choosing to embrace slavery to sin oh, more than our identity with Christ. Paul begins to speak about not just leaven, but he gives, talks about Christ being our Passover lamb has been sacrificed in verse 7. Paul's pointing to we're in a, a new covenant. Under the old covenant, there was a different way of doing this. But now he said we're under the blood. We're under the blood of Christ. This harks back, of course, to the Exodus story where the people were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them with a mighty hand. If you read through that story as I have been recently, just repeat it over and over. God delivered them with a mighty hand. And the moment and means of their greatest deliverance when they actually leave Egypt is when this uh, festival of the unleavened bread was instituted. For seven days they could only eat unleavened bread. They had to purge all the leaven out of their house. And, on, and then God instructed them after that that they would take a lamb, they would sacrifice it, they'd cover the doorways of their house and they would be protected from destruction and they would be freed from slavery. And at the end of their exodus, not when they leave Egypt at least, those who were arrogant in Egypt, those who were destructive in Egypt, lost everything. Didn't just lose their firstborn sons, they lost everything. Whereas God's people, under the blood of the Lamb, were protected, safe, freed, and on their way to the promised land. That established their community of faith, their community before God. So when Paul here talks about Christ being our Passover Lamb, that is what he's speaking of. He is now the sacrifice for us. Those who trust in Christ are covered by his blood. We have been passed over for destruction because we've placed our faith in him. But to ignore sin in our midst, to affirm sin in our midst, is to diminish what Christ has done. That is to, let, that, that is to feed on malice and evil, as he says. If that's the path you choose, you're sustaining yourself with malice and with evil. Instead, instead, he says, the eternal Son of God has died for you. For the sin that you have committed. And that reality, that truth, should change your affections. It should change your passions. It should change your desires. It should change your purpose. 
that then allows you to live in sincerity and truth. And that's what sustains you. Christ himself was truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Christ himself, you couldn't get any more and more sincere than Christ. There was no duplicity in him. There was nothing fake. The alternative to being destroyed by your own passions and desires is to place yourself under him. To be passed over because he's taken your sin for you. He's atoned for that. He's paid the eternal consequence for it. So what do we see from this passage? We see that discipline is, is a gift, maybe an uncomfortable one. But when we see how sinful we are and how much we need Christ's truth and sincerity to sustain us, and we see his sacrifice as saving us, then we see the church when it functions under these rules. is a wonderful, attractive place. Even though it's imperfect. When we then face temptation, whatever kind, and we're going to look further at this in the next few weeks, but when we face sexual temptation, or even when we sin sexually, Christ's sacrifice has made a way for us to get out of slavery. So we have a choice. Choose life or choose death. That is what was put before the people of Israel as they left Egypt and were in the wilderness and entering with the promise of entering the promised land. Choose life or choose death. You can choose to celebrate your sin and affirm it and that can become your identity. That's all you're left with. When you identify by your sin, that is who you are. And that will lead to your destruction. Or we can celebrate Christ. As Paul tells us to, let us celebrate the festival. Let's celebrate Christ's death. That's what we're going to do in a few weeks. It seems a strange thing to do, but we have instruction in Scripture. Let's celebrate the festival. Let's celebrate the sacrifice of Christ in our lives for our church, for us. And we celebrate him, we affirm truth, and we embrace a sincere and open way of living. Let's pray. Father, we, in your word, we are often confronted with, with how set apart and holy you are and how much we are in need of you to reach out to us so we can even come close. And we're so grateful that you have. We're so grateful that you have provided us a cure to our sin, of arrogance, of boasting, of pride. That you've even put us in a, a community, instructed us to live in such a way that we confront such things so these things don't destroy us or don't destroy others and where there is, shouldn't be hurts in these ways. And when there is, you've given us the authority to do this, to deal with it. Lord, help us as a church to mourn our sin and to hand it 
over to you. That we would be confessors, that we would be intercessors for each other. But Lord, let us be a church that looks to Christ, that we celebrate him and what he's done for us. It's in his name we thank you and thank you for your word. Amen. Thank you, Luke.